Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all today. I'm grateful to Pastor Adam for giving me this opportunity to be able to share the word with you all. Um, my family began attending here when I was four. And so I was here all the way from that point until I went to school. So it's, this has been my, my stomping grounds, as it were. And so it's neat to be able to come back here and share the word with you all. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. My goal for today essentially is to introduce what we'll be doing for the next few weeks and give somewhat of an extended introduction to it. So 1 Corinthians 15 We'll just read the first two verses here. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that you have given to us your written word, that we can study it and through it come to know you, our God and our Father. I do pray that you would make the time we spend together in these next few weeks profitable, that we would come to a greater understanding of your word and through it of your love for us. I pray now that you would give us attentive hearts to your word, that we would hear, and I pray that you would grow us through it. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So for the next couple weeks, what I'd like to do is give kind of an overview of perseverance in the Christian life. And perseverance is something that Theologically speaking, we often talk about as the perseverance of the saints, where if someone were to ask you, come up to you and say, how would you explain the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints? A lot, a lot of times the common answer would be, that means that you can't lose your salvation, essentially. That God has chosen a certain people, and those people he will preserve all the way until the end, and as a, as a consequence of that, those people will persevere all the way to the end of life and ultimately into glorification. So I'd like us to consider this a little bit. Um, if you would keep a finger in 1 Corinthians 15, we'll come right back here. But if you could turn over to Romans chapter 8. Today we're going to be jumping around to a lot of passages and kind of giving an overview of a few things to show how prevalent this theme is in the New Testament. In Romans 8, beginning in verse 28, we read, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We'll end our reading there. The main reason I wanted us to turn to this verse is just because it illustrates very well the core idea that's being communicated um, through the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. You have this kind of chain of events here. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. In verse 30, those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so you have this direct link between the people that God chose for himself and the people who ultimately experience glorification. Um, So the key idea essentially is that perseverance for believers is something that is guaranteed in a sense. If we know Christ and we are truly participants in his grace, then it is guaranteed to us that we will persevere then to the end. However, my goal for this series is not so much to study the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints as much in, in that sense, but to study simply how does it look for a believer to persevere. So not simply stating that that's what happens, but then stating, okay, what does that look like in life, and what is that based on? So coming back to 1 Corinthians 15, I want to begin to answer a question, and that question is why should we care about perseverance, and why should we study it? Um, I find it helpful sometimes in going through different studies to ask this question of why is this necessary, because it raises some questions in your mind to help you start to think through the importance of that topic for, really, for the Christian life. So I have a couple things I'd like us to note about perseverance. Um, And in connection with what I just said about how perseverance is guaranteed for those who know Christ, some of this might almost seem contradictory to that for a little bit. So the first thing I want us to see is that perseverance is actually a condition of salvation. Perseverance is a condition of salvation. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is writing to this church to remind them of the gospel that he preached to them. And he says a few things about that gospel. He says that this is something that he preached and the Corinthian church received. So there was a, as it were, an initial reception of the gospel message and belief in it. And the next, in which you stand. Um, And so you have this kind of continued aspect. So Paul has preached the gospel to them. They have received it. And now, that is the foundation that they're standing on for their Christian lives. And then he says in verse 2, by which you are being saved. Now, I think that's an interesting phrase because often when we talk about salvation, when we share our testimonies, we we use phrasing such as, you know, I got saved when I was this age. Or, you know, we'll ask someone, when did you get saved? And while there's validity to that, I think we also should note that Scripture in a number of places actually 
speaks of salvation as being something continual. So the gospel is that by which believers are continually being saved. And so that leads us then to this last little conditional phrase in verse 2. By which you are being saved if. There's a condition. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Now we're not going to spend most of our time this morning in this text, but I wanted to address it simply because it's one of the clearest places in Scripture where we're given almost this dichotomy. You are being saved. That's something that we're, we're not doing. It's a passive verb there. Something that's happening to us. We are being saved if we do something. If we hold fast to the word that was preached. And at first, when we are used to talking about justification by faith alone, right? God gives to us in his word, the gospel, and tells us that if we believe, we will be saved. And there is, there is this moment in time justification that happens. So when I say something like, or when the scripture says something like, you are being saved if you do something, suddenly we almost have a red flag that goes off in our minds. Like, but that sounds like salvation by works. Now you're telling me you are being saved if you will do these things which isn't the very hope of the gospel, that nothing we do will save us, that all of our, our hope, our faith, our trust is in Christ and in his righteousness as the only basis for our salvation. And that's true. That's true. And part of my goal for the next few weeks is to look at how these two things work together. How is it that perseverance, on the one hand, is something that we do, and it's something that's necessary for salvation. But on the other hand, God is the one who saves us apart from any of our work. So I'd like us to kind of look briefly at a few other passages here in the New Testament that just kind of reinforce this idea that perseverance is something um, very important and necessary for each of us. So if you turn with me to John chapter 8, John chapter 8, and we will read a fairly lengthy passage here actually, beginning in verse 12 and going all the way through verse 33. John 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. 
In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Actually, we'll end our reading there in verse 32. There's a couple things I want us to note in this passage. I want us to look through verses 12 through 30, this whole discourse that Jesus has with the Pharisees, and look at the different claims that Jesus makes here. In verse 12, Jesus says that he is the light of the world and that whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, for those of us who are familiar with Scripture, much of what we hear is very familiar to us. But when we think about the words that Jesus is using, think about being the ones hearing this for the first time. This is powerful. This is, this is a strong claim to come and say to a group of people, I am the light of the whole world. And whoever is following me walks in the light, and whoever does not follow me is in the darkness. That's a pretty bold claim to make. Moving on, in verse 16, he says that even if he does judge, his judgment is true, for it is not him alone who judges, but him and the Father who sent him. And all through this passage, you have Jesus claiming his relationship to the Father, to the one whom the Jews claim to be their God. And he is claiming that his authority is not his own, it is God's. 
but yet he does have authority because God has given it to him. And so he is the one that is bearing all of God's authority on earth, as it were. And later on, verse 19, when they ask, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So now you have even more of a claim. It's not simply that Christ is the one who is, as it were, the, the ambassador of God's power. It's not just that he, God the Father has given Christ power on earth, but actually Christ claims here in equality with the Father that if you know me, then you would know the Father. The reason why you don't know him is that you don't know me. Going on in verse 23, he says, You are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. Okay, again, just take those words by themselves and think of being the first people to hear that. Someone comes to you and says, You are of this world, but I, I'm not of this world. It's like, oh, really? You know, I, I see you here, I'm talking to you. It seems you're breathing the same air I am, standing on the same ground. It seems like you're of this world. Um, these are, these are bold claims to make. Going on in verse 28, Jesus says, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And now you have, in a sense, even a bolder claim, because He says, When you have lifted me up, then you will know. I think probably why I think that's one of the boldest statements he could say is because he's, he's saying something to them about their own knowledge. And he's telling them, you will know that I am who I claim to be when you have lifted me up. And a few verses earlier, he says, you know, only the gospel message I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Again, that's a bold claim. And my reason for pointing out, in a sense, the, the novelty of what Christ is saying here for, for this time is because in verse 31, Jesus begins talking to Jews who actually believed him. So he's been addressing these people and there are many who are not receiving his word, but there are some who are actually believing all of these claims. And what does he say to them? Does he say, oh, you believed. I, I shared the gospel with you and you believed. So now you, know, you are, now you have eternal life. No, he says, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The word abide essentially is just the word to remain, um, almost to, to continue, to, to dwell. If you, if you remain in my word, then you are truly my disciples. It's not only that I spoke to you and you believed what I said at first, but you will show yourself to be my disciples if you actually remain then in my word after originally hearing it and originally receiving it, which makes us think again of that 1 Corinthians passage where Paul says, this is the gospel which you received, but now in which you stand and by which you are continually being saved. 
So I want us to turn over to Luke chapter 8. And again, my goal here is basically just to put before us some of these passages that teach this, this idea that perseverance is necessary. And we'll, we'll kind of deal with what these are all bringing up a little later. But in Luke 4, or Luke 8, um, this is a very familiar parable to us, the parable of the sower and of the seeds. And I'd like us to, to read the whole thing. So beginning in verse 4 and going through verse 15. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil, and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. There's a couple things I think probably are fairly self-evident from this text. When, when the word of God is given in this parable, there are a few different responses to it that we're all familiar with. The first one, Christ says some seed falls along the path, and the devil comes and takes it so that the hearers can't believe. So for them, they hear the message, but they are, they are not actually believing the message. There's no reception to it. The next group of people, the ones on the rock, says they hear the word and receive it with joy. You know, that's an interesting statement. It's not simply that they hear, you know, they hear factual claims, they hear truth claims, and they say in their mind, yes, I think that is factually true. I think that's accurate. I intellectually assent to it. There's also an emotional response. They received it with joy. Now, for any of us, if we're sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, and we, we walk them through the message of the cross, of what Christ has done, and their first response is to receive that joyfully, that would be really, really encouraging to each one of us. And it would be very easy to go from there and say, 
oh, so-and-so got saved. It's like, well, maybe. Maybe they did. But that salvation is, is proved over time. And so for those who are, who are the rock in this parable, the seed on the rock, they hear it, receive it with joy, but there's no root. And so their belief is, is shortened. They believe for a while, but in time of testing, fall away. Then you have another group, the ones that, the seed that falls among thorns, and they hear, and the, the assumption here is they also are believing, but as they are growing up in a sense, as their roots are growing and they're, they're growing as a Christian, we might say, in what we would experience, all these other things are growing up with them. All these thorns, they're choked by the cares, riches, pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. So again, you have someone who, at the beginning, it looks like, oh, this might actually be someone whom the Lord has, has saved, who the Lord has made this person alive. And yet, again, as time continues, time shows that what is really growing with them is not the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit that would come from this seed actually taking root, but instead it's the cares and the pleasures and riches of life. And those things are choking out the original fruit that looked like it might start to grow. Then you have one last group, the seed in the good soil, who hearing the word, hold it fast. Think about that phrase, holding it fast. You know, you can almost think of someone, you know, they're, they're falling out of a window and they're grasping onto the windowsill to not fall. You know, they're holding it fast. You can think of the knuckles whitening. They're doing all they can to not fall. Um, and they're doing all they can to keep, in that, in that analogy, the window is kind of their security, right? And they are trying as much as they can to keep that in their grasp. And that's kind of the idea here. They hear the word and they hold it fast in an honest and a good heart, and they bear fruit with patience. And the word patience there, um, if we think of patience simply as something has happened to me, I need to respond patiently, it's kind of an interesting word choice in this verse. They are bearing fruit with patience. Um, But in Scripture, that word often is translated as endurance, even. It's the same word. Um, So these are those these people are the ones who, they hear the word, they do hold it fast, and they do begin to bear fruit as they endure the trials of life. And so again, what's fairly obvious from this whole parable is that if you don't continue, if you don't persevere, ultimately, you're not truly one of the Lord's people. The first three categories show themselves not to be true believers, and the last category is the only one at the end of the day that truly belongs to the Lord, though three of those categories had a similar initial response to the gospel. So one last passage kind of in this same vein. Let's turn over to Colossians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 15, 
we'll read down to verse 23. Colossians 1.15, we read of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. One of the things I think that's interesting about this passage is that it ties this idea of of persevering there in verse 23, if you continue in the faith. It ties this directly now with the work of Christ. After this whole explanation of who Christ is as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one who has reconciled all things to himself. Where does he go after that? He says, you who once were far off from Christ, he is now reconciled in his flesh by his death so that he would be able to present you no longer in your sin and in your wickedness, but now blameless and righteous in him and holy before the Father. And he will do that if, indeed, you continue in the faith. And again, it sounds strange at first. It's like, okay, how does that work? Christ has reconciled us, past tense. He has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death so that he can present us to God if we continue. And so, you, after going through these passages, you almost end up with this question. Okay, so is salvation... At the initial moment, when, when you believe the gospel, is that something that God is the one saving you then, and then after he saves you initially, then he kind of leaves it up to people to finish the job, as it were, you know? So God, to use the parable of the sower, God starts salvation for three different kinds of people, for those who um, will persevere, and those who won't, and those who will be choked by the things of the world. So he starts salvation for all of them. And then the difference between the three of them essentially is that one group is, is stronger than the other and actually can, can work their way all the way to the end. No, that's not, that's not the teaching of Scripture because we know that salvation is only by grace, only by faith, so that no human being might boast in his own work. But if we're thinking about perseverance as something necessary for salvation, as it were, that we won't be saved unless we persevere, then you almost are left with this idea of, so I'll get to heaven, 
And yes, I'll give God glory for, you know, in a sense, for providing the gospel as the means for my salvation. But then I also have a little bit that I can boast about because, after all, I did endure quite a few things through the course of life, and that's why I'm here. And that's why other people are not, because they couldn't. Well, I want us to look at this a little bit. And for the most part, um, as the study goes on, some of the texts will deal with, uh, will deal with some of these questions. But I want to talk about this here at the beginning. Um, so not only is perseverance a condition of our salvation, but perseverance is actually God's means of preserving us. And I want us to look at a few passages for this as well. If you turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, I do apologize, we are going to a lot of passages today. This will not be the case for the other weeks. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, we'll read this passage here. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So a few things from this passage as well that I'd like us to note. First, we have again another description of perseverance, kind of, of, of endurance, that we are commanded here to be diligent to confirm our calling and election. If we claim to, to be those who have believed in Christ, who know him, who've been chosen by him, then by what we do in our lives, by our actions, by our words, we are actually, in a sense, either confirming that reality or we are not confirming that reality. And so Peter says that if we practice these qualities that he's just listed out, if we practice these things, we will never fall. He says that if these things are in us and are increasing, these virtues, very similar to the fruits of the Spirit, if these things are in us, they will keep us from falling. And interestingly, then in verse 11, he says that in this way, 
there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In what way? In the way of continuing to practice these qualities and to make our calling and election sure. And in doing that, there is then richly provided for us an entrance into the kingdom. Which again gives us that question. Okay, so is our entrance to the kingdom based on um, the qualities that we practice? Is it based on our ability not to fall? You know, we think of Peter denying Christ openly. That's quite the fall. So is, is this verse saying that, you know, if you do fall, therefore you don't have an entrance into the kingdom because you haven't been confirming your calling and election. And if you stand strong, then you will. No, Peter's the one that's writing this after, after he denied Christ. But I think it's helpful to look back to verse 3 here in 2 Peter 1 and to look at where do these qualities come from in the first place? These things that we're supposed to be practicing, these things that we're supposed to be using to confirm our calling and election. Verse 1 says that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So right here, suddenly, if we are ever tempted to take our, our work, in a sense, our work of perseverance, the things that we've done to stand firm, if we take those things apart from Christ, we, we lose them. All of these virtues, all of these um, fruits, as it were, that the Christian bears are tied directly to Christ. John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. He says in verse 5 in that chapter, if you do not, apart from me, you can do nothing. So if we are not rooted in Christ, ultimately, there is nothing that we can do. Which is interesting because the authors of all these passages, one thing that they're assuming is they're assuming that we can do these things. And I think what that shows is that these texts on perseverance are assuming someone who has been regenerated, someone whom God has given a new nature. And it is that nature where Paul, Paul writes about being dead in trespasses and sins, having an old nature, and God in saving us, giving us a new nature that in a sense, just as our old self was inclined to sin, our new self in the same way is inclined to righteousness because the new self that we are given is one that is united to Christ. So when we read that God's divine power has granted to us the very things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, we have to stop there for a minute and think, okay, what is it then that is necessary for us to continue in a godly life? The things that God has given to us, he's given to us through the knowledge of of himself. Ultimately, there is no perseverance apart from a knowledge of God 
And in a fundamental sense, that's all that perseverance is, is continuing to grow in knowing God. And we know from Scripture that this is not something that we can conjure up in and of ourselves to do. We cannot make ourselves know God. God is the one that must do that. And we read in verse 4 here that God has granted to us his precious and great promises so that through them we might become partakers of the divine nature. So as we read through Scripture, we have these statements of, unless you can, if you continue, then you will be saved. If you, if you persevere, then you will enter the kingdom. But we have to recognize that God himself, in his word, has given us the things necessary for that perseverance. And on top of that, he has given us his promises that of all those who come to him, he will turn none away. Jesus says that all whom the Father has given to him, he will not lose one. So we have great promises to look to and to hold fast to as we think about perseverance. And I'd like us to to think about an Old Testament story to kind of get this idea of our perseverance working with God's preservation. Think about Noah and the ark. Did God preserve Noah in the flood? I think we would all say he did. Who built the ark? God commands Noah to build the ark, gives him the directions for it, gives him the instructions, and Noah builds an ark. And that ark is the means by which God ends up preserving him. If God commands Noah to build the ark and Noah doesn't build it, what happens to Noah? The means by which God was going to preserve him, that means is gone now, and Noah's in the water. But when Noah builds the ark, his action, in a sense, is the means by which God preserves him. Now, the analogy breaks down a little bit here because of this. In a sense, we could say also that the ark saved Noah. So if he's building the thing that saved himself, that doesn't sound much like salvation because Christ is the one that saves us. But if we think of the analogy in terms of Noah already being in favor with God, right, as the, as the account says in chapter 6, if Noah is in favor with God, and then God is now preserving Noah, it makes sense that what Noah does is going to be very key to how God is going to preserve him. And Noah can't come to the end of the flood and tell people that he saved himself. In no way is that true. For God is the one, beginning to end, who preserved him. But he does so through the instrumentality of Noah's actions. And in a sense, even in salvation, God is the one who saves us. It's his work alone. But he uses the means of changing our will, giving us a desire for himself. God does not save us contrary to our own desire, if that makes sense. He changes our will through regeneration so that our will desires him. So in all of God's actions that he does, he uses, in a sense, our own actions as means to accomplish his purposes. Um, I am about a third of the way through what I thought I was going to get to this morning. So I feel like we're ending at a spot where there's 
lot of things I did not communicate yet. So we will have to pick up here um, next week just to give a little bit of warning. My goal is to basically go through the book of Hebrews in the next couple weeks um, and consider perseverance from the perspective of the letter to the Hebrews. Um, and I think as we go through that book, a lot of the questions that we have will be answered. Um, and I think we'll kind of gain a good, hopefully a better understanding of Hebrews, but also a good understanding of what perseverance looks like. Um, but I was hoping to have today to kind of look through some other passages just to show that this aspect of perseverance shows up again and again throughout the New Testament. Um, well, this is not where I was hoping to end, but we're out of time. So we'll close in prayer, and we will pick up back here next week. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given to us all things that are necessary for life and godliness. We thank you for the promises you've given to us. Lord, we know that as we look in your word, we are convicted of our own sin, our own, in a sense, weakness, our own inability to persevere. And so we thank you for being the one who preserves. We thank you for being the one who saves. And we ask that you would increase our faith in you, that we would not seek to build up a righteousness of our own, but that we would look to you is the only source of life. We pray now that as we prepare for our morning service that you would quiet our hearts to be able to hear your word. We ask that you would open our eyes that we would be able to understand it. I pray for Pastor Adam as he preaches that you would fill him with your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One more thing I forgot. Hebrews is supposed to take about 45 minutes to read through. So between six and eight minutes a day, you should be able to read all the way through Hebrews by next week. And if you could do that, I think we would all be helped as we start our study there. So, thank you.